The text for this morning's worship service is taken from Paul's letter to the Galatians as we continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22 of chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 100, Psalm 100, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that includes you boys and girls, this morning we have come to the sixth fruit of the Spirit, to the word goodness. And it bears reminding that all these nine words which Paul has neatly lined up for us here are all part of the same fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control all belong to the one fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you cannot separate these virtues. You cannot boast to be patient and kind and loving and joyful while ignoring some of the others. You have to possess all nine virtues. You cannot skip one or two and be satisfied. No, there is no room for laxness. And that is quite a tall order. Many people will give up before even trying. It's too hard. And they would rather throw themselves at the mercy of God, hoping that God will forgive them their shortcomings. They look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit and what you are supposed to be like as a Christian, and then they give up as soon as the slugging gets too hard, thinking to themselves, that's the way I am. It's no use trying to change. People will just have to accept me the way I am. But we know that that's not scriptural, don't we? That's not how God wants us to conduct ourselves, does he? For who are we? Well, we are the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. And as such, we must bear fruit. As such, we must be good people. But what does it mean to be good? And that's what we will consider as we listen to the preaching this morning as I've summarized it under the following theme. The sixth virtue of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is goodness. And we will see in the first place that God alone is good. And secondly, that therefore man must also be good. As I said, we are to be good people. That's what the Lord God requires from us. But that presents us with quite a problem. For we just read from the Gospel of Mark, and there the rich man asks the Lord Jesus a very important question. He asks him about eternal life. He asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then the Lord Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Now, that is quite a profound statement. No one is good but God alone. In other words, there is nothing here on earth which has any measure of goodness. God alone is good. Nothing and no one else measures up. When we read statements like this in the Bible, is it then any wonder that people give up before they even try? For look at what else we read this morning together. Paul in his letter to the Romans describes the plight of man. And he says there about himself and therefore about all of mankind, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So here we have quite a dilemma. On the one hand, we hear that God alone is good, and on the other hand, that nothing good dwells within man. On top of that, there's another problem we have to face. The Lord Jesus also rebukes the rich man for calling him good. So it appears that even Christ himself does not ascribe to himself any goodness. And therefore it would seem that he even denies his own divinity. For by saying that God alone is good, he puts himself on a lower level than God. Indeed, the Jehovah Witnesses also use this verse as proof that Christ is not any different than any other man. He may be one of the highest of all creatures, they say, but he is not God. He is less than God. Well, let's take a close look at this passage. And it's clear that the Lord Jesus is full of compassion for this rich young ruler. For we read that he looked upon this man and that he loved him. But Christ also noted that there is something quite superficial about this young man. This young man thinks of himself as a good person. For he tells the Lord Jesus that he keeps all the commandments and that he has done so from his youth. Doesn't that make me good? Indeed, that's what he thinks. For he bought into the theology of the Pharisees that man can be good of himself. He believes that man can earn his own salvation or at least contribute a large part to it. That's also what the Judaizers taught against whom, is right, against whom Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians. They taught that you still have to keep the Old Testament laws such as circumcision and other ceremonial laws else you won't be saved. Your salvation depends on your good works. That makes Paul very angry. He wants the Galatians and us to understand that you cannot be good by keeping certain rules. That's not what the gospel is all about. Now, don't think that such thinking was prevalent only during the time of the Lord Jesus. Today, we encounter that same kind of thinking. People of the world believe that as long as you're a good person, that then, ultimately, you have nothing to worry about. And modern Christianity feeds that kind of thinking. For most Christian churches are a minion in their theology. 
There's also a song that reflects that kind of thinking. Some of you will remember the words. Well, it kind of dates me because it goes a while back. But you will understand what the lyrics are and how that applies. And that song goes something like this. Where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. Now she is in heaven, so I got to be good so I can be where she is when I leave this world. You see, that is the philosophy of man today. Modern man is a firm believer in the doctrine of good works. They don't worry. They look at their own lives and say, I'm a good person. I give to the odd charity once in a while. I try not to get into trouble with the law. I hold down a job. I don't drink too much. I don't swear half as much as other people I know. I try to live peaceably with other men. And so they will focus on all their good qualities. According to them, God will not reject them on the basis of their good works. They don't have anything to worry about. You see, that's the kind of attitude that this rich young ruler had as well. He thought of himself as a good person, at least someone better than a lot of others. And he thought the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus to be a good man. He saw all the good things that he was doing. And in that sense, he put the Lord Jesus on the same level as himself. But now, what does the Lord Jesus say to him in effect? He says, now you hold on a minute there, young man. And don't apply such a standard of goodness to me. And don't come to me with your false ideas. If you want to be talking to me about goodness, then let us use the absolute standard of goodness, which is God himself, for only God is full of goodness. And if you know God, then you will also know me. For you see, this young man did not really know the Lord Jesus Christ. To him, he was nothing more than another rabbi. A good one, mind you, but he did not realize that he was speaking to the Son of God, indeed to God himself. If he had believed that Jesus was the Son of God, then he would have also followed Jesus' instructions and sold all he had. This rich young man thought that religion is a matter of following certain rules. If you do some of the right things, then you automatically please the Lord and you earn yourself a place of favor with him. But what does the Lord say to us? He says to you and to me, I want your heart, brother or sister. Don't think that you can earn your salvation, for even the best of your good works are all permeated with sin. There is only one who is good, and that is God himself. And indeed, that's also what we confess. It's also what we could sing together this morning from Psalm 119, stanza 26. O thou art good, and Lord, thou doest good. Only God is good. 
and therefore goodness can come from him alone. And that's how the Lord God revealed himself already in paradise. For we read that when God created the earth and all that is in it, that he saw that it was good. And about man, he even uses the word that it was very good. He created all things, including man, and all that goodness comes from God alone. But what did man do? Man threw it all away. He didn't want the good from God alone. He wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to know evil as well. And so that's exactly what he received. He received the evil. From then on in, man did not know any longer what goodness existed of, for he no longer knew God. For you cannot have it both ways. It's either the one or the other. It is either the good or the bad. It was either Satan or God. There is no middle way. And sadly, man chose for Satan. He rejected God and therefore he also rejected all that is good and decent and wholesome. And so man was no longer able to do good either. Goodness no longer belonged to him. He lost it. As David says in Psalm 14, verse 3, All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says the same thing. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. And again, that is exactly where the dilemma comes in. For in spite of the fact that man is totally corrupt, the scriptures nevertheless tell man, you and me, to do good. It is expected from us. For example, in Amos 5, verse 14 and 15, it says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And then the Lord God will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Man is expected to do good and to hate evil even though he is incapable of any good and inclined to all evil. But now the question is, if man is incapable of doing good, why does God still require it from man? And now, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we come to the heart of the gospel. For we learn that in spite of man's unworthiness and inability, The Lord God continues to shower him with his goodness. He gives his goodness to you. Look around you, brothers and sisters. Look at your own lives and see the goodness of the Lord. He gives you life. He gives you good food to drink and good food to eat. And he gives you shelter. He gives you drink. He gives you a father and a mother. 
He makes it so that you can enjoy life. And that's all from the Lord. And there is no room for evil in the midst of God's goodness. And therefore, God only asks what is due Him alone. He asks that we use His goodness and that we give Him thanks for it. It cannot be otherwise. And what is the ultimate goodness that He gives to mankind? Well, do you know what the ultimate goodness is that God gives to you and to me? You heard it this morning. The law. He gave you His law. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7 verse 12. We read it together. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Indeed, if you read, for example, through that very large psalm, Psalm 119, and then you will note that that whole psalm is nothing more than a love song. A love song about God's goodness, His law. For almost every sentence speaks about how good and delightful God's law is. For example, in verse 48, If I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. And verse 72, The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And in verse 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. And so those statements go on and on. Why is the law of God considered to be so delightful and good? For is it not so that the law brings us death? Isn't that what Paul himself says? For he says in Romans 7 verse 9, Once I was alive, Apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. Well, Paul also answers that question. He asks whether indeed that which is good, that is, the law became death to him. But then he says further in verse 13, by no means. But in order that sin might be recognized I sin as sin, it produced death in me through what is good. So that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. You, and so you see that ultimately the law brings life, not death. Without the law, man would be dead. For what does the law do? The law describes the relationship between God and man. It sets out the way that man can be part of the creator and his creation. Without such rules, participation in God and all that he has would be impossible. And that is why Paul is also so full of agony. He cries out in his misery that he cannot keep the law. It is no wonder that he says that nothing good dwells within him, that he can will what is right, but cannot do it. For that which is good, that is the law, does not live in him. Paul is fully aware of that. It is that realization that brings him on his knees in agony. But then Paul also knows something else, brothers and sisters. He knows that Christ came. 
And Christ is the embodiment of goodness. For he is also the embodiment of the law. For Christ alone can keep the law. He alone can keep the rules which keep him always in communion with his Father. For he always does his Father's will. He never once deviated from the good. There was no evil in Christ. And the beautiful thing is that Christ kept that which is good, not just for himself, but he gave it to mankind. He did it for them. And that is why Paul at the same time can also be so joyful. On the one hand, he knows himself to be a wretched man, for he says, What wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. But then at the same time, he comes with his cry of triumph, saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only those who belong to Christ can be good and do good. That brings us to the second point. By now it should be clear what it means to do good and to be good. To do good means to do the law of God. That's the only good. That's why it says in verse 23 of Galatians 5, after enumerating the nine virtues belonging to the fruit of the Spirit, that against such there is no law. That applies to all nine, but especially to the virtue of goodness. He who does good does not sin. And therefore we ought to delight in that law. For the law shows us the way to the Father. It shows us life. The beautiful thing this morning is that we know right off the bat that the law has been kept for us. Christ did so. We do not have to despair, therefore. We do not have to be good in our own strength. Indeed, we can't. Goodness we have already because we belong to Christ. And you see, that is always our starting point. That doesn't mean that we don't have to do good ourselves. Oh, yes. But we do that in the knowledge that we are already good in Christ. And now you have to live up to that ideal. Now Christ becomes our model. He is the one we must imitate. Please don't think that while the Lord Jesus was on earth, that it was easy for him to be good. When he was on earth, he experienced the weakness of the flesh, just like you and I. And that is why when Satan tempted the Lord Jesus, they were real temptations. In Luke 4, we read about the way the Lord Jesus was tempted at the very beginning of his ministry. And at that time, he was tempted three times. And the first temptation had to do with selfishness. We read in the verses 3 and 4 that the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. And here Satan is trying to get the Lord Jesus to focus on himself and on his own needs. 
Isn't that what Satan did already in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Adam and Eve? He wanted them to look at their own situation rather than God's. He wanted them to be concerned about themselves, about their own well-being. They wanted, Satan wanted them to put themselves first. And that's where everything went off the rails. Isn't that what we are like as well? Are we not concerned about our own well-being before we are concerned about anybody else? As long as we have what we need. Only then will we think about somebody else. As long as we have enough food and clothing and a beautiful home and a nice shiny car and some nice toys and are able to live in comfort, then we are content. If there is something left over for the Lord or for somebody else, well, that's nice. But me first. That's what we're like. The Lord Jesus, however, does not fall for Satan's tricks. Even though he was extremely hungry, having fasted for, four, for 40 days and 40 nights, he did not give in to his own personal needs. It would have been easy for him to do that. It was very tempting. But if he would have given in to his own desires at that particular time, then he would never have been able to do what he came to do, namely to die for our sins. That act of his was the most unselfish act ever performed here on earth. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned not about himself, but about you and me. And therefore, he allowed himself to be treated like a common criminal and as if he had committed all the sins that we had committed. And so Christ, thankfully, withstood that temptation. And the second temptation has to do with the power of possessions and with power as such. The Bible describes Satan as the prince of this world. This evil world belongs to him. And Satan says to the Lord Jesus, I have control over all the people of this world. They're serving me. And so he says to the Lord Jesus, let's make a deal. I will give you this world if you worship me. Then you don't have to go through all your suffering and pain and sorrow. Make a deal with me and we will rule together. The lure of earthly possession and the power that comes with it is great. Also today, look at the lineup behind the lottery counters. People dream about buying new houses, new cars, taking exotic vacations and enjoying all the things that this world has to offer. That's how Satan tempts us as well. He wants us to be in love with the things of this world. He wants us to forget that the Lord God in heaven is the owner of all things. He wants us to serve Satan. Let me ask you who is ruling your life. If you were to show me or your elder your bank account, what would that show? Would you be willing to show it? 
What would that show concerning your priorities? Where does your money go? What's on the top of your list? Does that go, first of all, to serve you, your needs and your pleasures and your toys? What's on the top of your list and your budget? What does your bank account show about your priorities in life? How is Satan tempting you? The Lord Jesus answered Satan, that it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's how the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law. That's how he was good. Are you good in the same way? The third way in which the Lord Jesus was tempted concerned the temptation of popularity. He wants Jesus to throw him down from the highest point of the temple so that the angels of God will come down and catch him before he hits the ground. In other words, he is tempting the Lord Jesus to do something very spectacular in order to amaze the crowds so that he can show them his power. And if he did that from the temple area, then all the important people of Israel would be there and they would all stand amazed and in awe of him. Would he then ever be popular? He wouldn't have to go through Israel for two and a half years with a few disciples as his followers. And he could then avoid pain and sorrow. And so it would be easy for him to do what Satan wants him to do. And then the people will follow him everywhere. And the same temptation was given to the Lord Jesus when he hung on the cross. The people cried out at that time, Jesus, if you are really the Messiah, then come down from the cross and save yourself. Then we will believe in you. Show us really that you are the Son of God and we'll follow you. What a temptation that must have been for the Lord Jesus, for he could have done it. He could have saved himself, but he could not have saved himself and then us too. And so the Lord Jesus says to Satan, do not put the Lord God to the test. The temptation of popularity is also very great for us. We too want to be admired by others, don't we? That's often what motivates us as well, isn't it? We are out to make a name for ourselves. That's why we want certain possessions so we can show off or certain positions in life. And that's why we get so angry when our own personal name is not treated with the respect that it should be. And that is why we hide certain things about ourselves from others. We don't want them to see the real us. We want to project an image of competence and purity. We don't want people to see the real person that we are. We want people to be convinced of our own inherent goodness. And so we do many things in order to enhance our own reputation. We make ourselves to be an idol to be worshipped. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Lord Jesus withstood all the temptations of Satan. That's how he fulfilled the law. That's how he was good. And he wants you and me to do the same.
He wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to bear the fruit of goodness that God gives to us. He wants us to serve Him. And brothers and sisters, don't throw in the towel. God is good and He imputes His goodness so that you can imitate Him. Your own inherent goodness will not get you into heaven. Only Christ's goodness can. But when you do good, then you show that you belong to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And His goodness will be yours forever. And so, do good. And show that you are a child of God. Amen.